The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and look at this wonderful book of Titus. Uh, we introduced it last week. Uh, got some good feedback. Some folks have actually never delved into Titus in depth. That's good. You're going to be blessed. Someone actually told me uh, Titus is one of their favorite books of the Bible. And I had to agree because actually when you start studying a book of the Bible, that book that I'm studying is always my favorite. Um, So it's always hard to pick a book to study. Uh, We landed on Titus for a lot of practical reasons. The themes that are addressed in the book of Titus are very pertinent to where we are as a church. And we're going to see that as we go through. Uh, Today we're just going to look at verses 1 through 4 on what's called the salutation or the introduction of this book. And I broke that up into just three main points of emphasis that Paul highlights there. So let's go ahead and follow along as I read in this wonderful little epistle, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That's verses 1 through 4. So the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters that you'll find in your New Testament. His introductions to all of his letters, they have some similarities. He always starts off with his name, so we know who it is. But then there are some differences. And the difference that stands out in the introduction here in the book of Titus is this is one of the longest introductions that Paul gives. As a matter of fact, this is like one very long sentence. I mean, it's got all kinds of prepositional phrases and relative clauses and that are connected, and it just goes on for uh, phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase. And if we wrote a sentence like this in English class, we'd probably get a D- minus from the teacher, saying you can't connect that many prepositional phrases and relative phrases together. But the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, uh, this is exactly what God wanted him to say, and it's exactly the way that God wanted him to say it. But the point being, it is complex, and yet it is very long. There's a lot of content there, and he's seems like he's bending over backwards to say a lot of things and provide a lot of caveats and specific information just in saying hi to Titus. Hi, Titus. But the reason he doesn't just say hi, Titus, is because he wants Titus to read this letter to the churches in Crete. Crete is that island where he left Titus to set things in order. And I believe one of the reasons it's so long here, just even in the introduction, A lot of it has to do with who Paul is, what his role is, how he was called by God, what his mission is, what the content of uh, the gospel is and salvation. Because Paul is validating in writing his call of God as an apostle, an agent from God and spokesperson in an authoritative manner on behalf of God and Jesus Christ. And these believers on the island of Crete, they need to know that. They also need to know that Titus, who's mentioned in verse 4, is being given delegated authority by the Apostle Paul himself to represent Paul to these believers on the island of Crete. The reason that is so important 
is because if we read the book of Acts, we don't find anything about an extensive ministry on the part of the Apostle Paul in Crete. But we do about Ephesians or Ephesus. You know, Paul went to Ephesus. He preached there. He planted a church there. He stayed there for three and a half years. So he spent a lot of time there, getting to know the people, building up the leadership. They knew his reputation. Uh, then in Corinth, the Apostle Paul was there for at least a, 18 months, a year and a half. He planted the church. He spent time with them. They knew who he was. They knew his reputation. They knew he was called of God. They knew he was an apostle. The believers on the island of Crete don't know Paul that way. There hasn't been a whole lot of face time as far as we know. As a matter of fact, we talked about last week, there are Christians on the island of Crete, but not necessarily directly from Paul's ministry. Because we saw in Acts chapter 2, at the time of Pentecost, there were God-fearers from the island of Crete that went to Jerusalem during the feast time and they actually heard the gospel preached by Peter. And no doubt some of those believed, took that belief back to Crete, and that could very well be the origin of believers on this isolated island of Crete. And now a couple of decades have gone by, and it could very well be that the believers on the island of Crete are not too familiar with this Apostle Paul. And now he's leaving Titus here to tell us what to do? Really? And that's a monumental task. And as a result, Paul makes it clear that Titus has God-ordained authority to represent the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ himself as Titus is given this huge responsibility of setting things order in the churches on the island of Crete. We don't know how many house churches there were, how many believers there were, but there were definitely believers and enough to have uh, churches recognized so on the island of Crete. So that's just kind of the background on even just that unique introduction that Titus gives us. With that, let's go on to the three main points that I want to highlight just in this introduction. A lot of times as Christians, we're reading through the Bible and we're reading a book and we see these introductions and we just whoop, zip right through them and we don't even take anything out of it. Oh, there's nothing really significant there. Well, actually there is. Every word of Scripture is precious. Every word of it. Every word of Scripture proceeds out of the mouth and the mind of God. It is living. It is active. And every portion of Scripture God wants to use to change us, to edify us, to rebuke us, to help us grow, to feed our soul. So we can't just zip by the first four verses because this is a greeting hello and think there's nothing significant there. There's much there that we can feed on. So let's go ahead and look at it. I broke it down into three main points there that I want to highlight. And point number one, let's go ahead and look at it. By the way, I, I titled this sermon, God Our Savior. Point of emphasis, and I take that right out of the text. God Our Savior. Because in, if you look at verse 4, it talks about Christ Jesus our Savior. And then at the very end of verse 3, it talks about God our Savior. And in this very short little book that we have three chapters of in English, a point of emphasis is given by Paul to Titus that God is the Savior. He's a saving God. Because that's in distinction to other books that emphasize that God is a God of wrath or God is the judge or God is holy or God is love. The point of emphasis in Titus that is unique is that God is Savior. That's what he wants to emphasize to Titus and to the churches. Christians, God is a saving God. He's not like Allah, who's primarily a judgmental God. He's a saving God. Then that needs to be emphasized while you're living as a Christian on Crete because you're living a bunch, uh, uh, amongst a bunch of pagans. 
who are lost without God, but God wants them to be saved. And a Christian needs to have a heart for the lost. And that is a point of emphasis all throughout the book of Titus is God as Savior and even Jesus Himself. So hence the title, God our Savior. And that is fleshed out three different ways by point of emphasis in the first four verses. The first point is the Savior's messenger. And that is Paul the Apostle. The Savior's messenger. God can do anything, they say. Well, God can do anything that's not contrary to His nature, but God could do anything. Could God theoretically just save sinners by sitting up there in heaven and go, poof, oh, there's a sinner, poof, you're saved. And there's another one, poof, ooh, he almost got away, poof. Like, I guess God could. But God has chosen not to do that. The amazing Creator, infinite God of the universe has decided to delegate work and responsibilities to the fallen human race to do His work on His behalf. And getting out the message of salvation is one of those things that God of the universe is entrusted to us as human beings. So God uses believers as agents of His good news to get the Gospel out to people. And that's why I got there point number one, the Savior's messenger. God has chosen to use human agents, especially during the church age, to get the specific message of salvation out to the lost, out to sinners. And as Jesus was preparing His apostles to lay the foundation of the church, He started with them. It began with them. They would be His messengers. They would be His agents and His emissaries. They're His ambassadors. And an ambassador is somebody who goes on behalf and the authority of someone else to speak to another people group with the same binding authority uh, who sent them. That's what an ambassador is. And that's what an apostle is. So that's why in verse 1, Paul introduces himself and he says, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So point number one is God has chosen sovereignly the beginning of the church age to get His message of salvation out through His designated apostles. First there were the twelve apostles of Jesus and then He raised up the apostle Paul a little later as a unique apostle, yet with the same authority as the twelve apostles. And Paul came to be known as the apostle to the Gentiles, whereas those first twelve focused on the Jewish people. So that's God's messenger, the Apostle Paul. A couple of interesting notes there that he says in verse 1. Paul, and that's his new name because he was born Saul. That was his mother and father's name for him. Saul, the first king of Israel, the great king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. And so he took on the name of the great king Saul, who wasn't always really great, by the way. But he was tall, dark, and handsome according to the Old Testament. But when Paul got saved, or Saul, yeah, when Paul got saved, he changed his name from Saul to Paul. Speaking of his new identity, and he takes on a name actually that would kind of appeal more to Gentiles and non-Jewish people. And so that's how he got his name. Speaking of his new identity in Christ. And he, he refers to himself in two ways as he describes his apostleship or his authority that he's going to delegate to Titus. First, he says that he is a bondservant of God. And actually the best translation, he is a slave of God. He is a slave of God. Bond slave, it's like, well, what is that? Actually, that's just a slave. And this word for slave is a designation of himself. And he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, what's unique is when Paul calls himself a slave of God. As far as we know, this is the only time where Paul calls himself a slave of God. Usually he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Slave of God. This phrase, slave of God, comes right out of the Old Testament. 
Moses is designated as a slave of Yahweh or a slave of God. That is actually a regular title referring to and describing Old Testament prophets who had authority among the Jewish people. Slaves of God. Servants of God. God was their master. They do only his bidding. They own him. So this unique phrase, slave of God, Paul applying that to himself instead of slave of Jesus Christ, could be that Paul wanted to establish his authority from God in the eyes of Jewish people on the island of Crete because they would recognize that Old Testament phrase. He's not just a slave of Jesus Christ. He is a slave of God in keeping with uh, prophets of the Old Testament. Look at verse 10 in Titus chapter 1. One of the problems that needed to be straightened out at Crete was there were professing Jewish Christians who infiltrated the churches at Crete and began to create problems with division, self-promotion, and even false doctrine. Professing Jewish believers, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Okay, so Paul is recognizing up front, hey, you've got the, the Christians and their church on the island of Crete has some Jewish influence that is not good. It is compromised. And so it could be Paul calling himself a slave of God is establishing his authority in the, in the eyes of the Jews among the churches there. Then that second phrase, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one or an ambassador on Jesus Christ, that word apostle is one that even Greeks and Gentiles would be familiar with and it could very well be Paul is calling himself that in addition to being a slave of God to establish his credibility and authority among Gentile believing Christians. So he's covering the whole gamut here. I have God-ordained authority from God to speak on behalf of God, and I am delegating that authority to Titus. Listen to him. By the way, just a footnote, as many of you know, Paul calling himself an apostle, uh, being an apostle was actually a spiritual gift. Today we are concerned about spiritual gifts, and we believe that every Christian has a spiritual gift that they're supposed to use in the church to edify and build the church. Apostleship was one of those spiritual gifts. We know that from 1 Corinthians 12 and other places. And that was a very limited spiritual gift. There are no apostles today. That's very important to understand and know because you can go into a Christian bookstore and look on several books and it says on the back of the book, this was written by Apostle so-and-so, Apostle Fred or Apostle Charlie or Apostle Nancy. And But we know from Scripture that can't be true because Scripture is clear. In order to be an apostle... You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That already limits it historically. And Paul was indeed an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And Scripture goes on, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where it says the apostles, who had this unique gift, had unique abilities, signs, wonders, and mighty deeds, they did miracles to validate their ministry, and they were also used by God to lay the foundation of the church. Once the foundation of the church was laid, they pretty much fulfilled their mission as apostles. And as a result, as we look back in church history for 1,900 years, the universal testimony of the church is there weren't any apostles during that time because it was a limited spiritual gift for those who were eyewitnesses of Christ and His resurrection. As a result, that gift doesn't exist today. It is not needed anymore. Very important, practically, for us to understand that today. So that is... 
the messenger, the Apostle Paul, who speaks with authority from God, and he's going to transfer the baton onto Titus, which leads us to point number two. So Paul's the messenger. Well, what's the message of Titus, and what's the message of the Apostle Paul? Uh, are you hearing me in the back, by the way? No. Are you hearing me in the back now? Testing? Nope. Okay. Okay, I'll just talk loud. It was on and then just... And the light's still on. I don't know what's on. Okay, let's go on to point number two. What is the Savior's message? What is this message that He's entrusted to the Apostles? He's entrusted to the church. The church has been the guardian of for 2,000 years that we as Christians are stewards of. What is this message? Tells us very clearly what that is. Uh, in this case, it's the message of salvation. Really, that's the big picture word, salvation. And then Paul here gives us three components to salvation. He explains very briefly the message of salvation and the reality of salvation from how it is going on in the present and then how it's going to culminate in the future. And so, Uh, the message of salvation. So, point number two, the Savior's message, eternal life for the chosen. For the chosen. Eternal life. All of its components. Past, present, and future. I'll just highlight a little bit on each one of past, present, and future of this message of salvation that is for the chosen. Paul, a slave of God and a master of Jesus Christ. For what? Well, for the faith. That's for the Christian the faith, the gospel, and uh, how it is used by God to people and to save people. And he specifically says, Paul is responsible for giving this message of salvation, which he calls the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. Just in the phrase right there are the three components of the salvation message and the salvation reality. That Paul communicates regarding the faith. Interesting phrase in the middle of verse 1 where he says, For the faith which is for the chosen of God. Some of you in your English translation, the first thing I wanted to highlight this doctrine of salvation. We experience salvation, we appropriate salvation in this lifetime. When we respond to the gospel, we hear and understand the gospel, put our faith and trust in the gospel. And then we get saved, justified by God. We enter into this personal relationship with God. That didn't start in this lifetime. God's plan for salvation and saving sinners actually started way before Adam and Eve sinned. It wasn't like Adam and Eve sinned and then God looked down, oops, I messed up, they, they blew it. Oh, now I've got to come up with a, a plan too. How am I going to rescue these sinners who blew it and didn't obey my word? That is not when God came up with the salvation plan. God actually devised, very specifically, the salvation plan before Adam and Eve were even created. Scripture tells us clearly God came up with the salvation plan in eternity past when nobody existed, not even the angels, and it was only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In eternity past, God, the triune God of the universe, came up with the salvation plan, very specifically. Amazing. And only God can do that, but that's what He did. And part of that component of God's salvation plan developed in eternity past that God would flesh out in human history has to do with the doctrine of election. Many of you have heard of the doctrine of election. Some of you maybe have heard it and don't quite understand it. 
Maybe some of you find it confusing. Some of you might even be agnostic on, do you believe in the doctrine of election? Some of you might even be asked, are you a Calvinist? You know what that means, usually? That's kind of a confusing question. Usually when somebody says, are you a Calvinist? Usually they're kind of inquiring as to what you think about the doctrine of election. So just in a nutshell, I want to explain what Paul means, because he's the one that gave the most detail about the doctrine of election, and hopefully uh, get rid of some of the fog that surrounds typical understandings of election. Paul, Paul says, I've been called by God to preach the faith which involves and entails those chosen of God, or the elect. So election, according to the Bible, is actually, we would call it one of the points, the five points of Calvinism. But long before Calvinism, election was in the Bible. The doctrine of election. All it is, in summary form, is it's the idea in eternity past that the triune God of the universe sovereignly chose those whom he would pour out his saving love on through the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And that would happen during our lifetime. In, in human history. So that's the doctrine of election. So God makes a sovereign choice. Oh, there, that's better. In eternity past. And he chooses and selects whom he's going to set his lo- saving love upon. That's all we get from the New Testament. Okay? God makes this decision to initiate his saving love on his beloved in eternity past. Then when uh, the world is created and fell into sin and then we're living life, then God works out that plan of salvation that he devised in eternity past through the gospel message, through those who preach it to us, working through us as individuals as we hear it, understand it, believe it, and respond through the work of the Holy Spirit and even using our own volition where our faith is genuine and we believe in the saving message and then we are saved in this lifetime. But our salvation was actually planned in eternity past through election. Election just means God chose and he chose certain people out of a larger group of other people. Now, here are some corollary truths to the doctrine of election that we just need to keep in mind and we don't have time to go through all of them. Uh, But first, explaining what election is not. It's often... Uh, defined the wrong way. Some people will say, well, God, election is just simply in eternity past God, because he is omniscient, he just looked down the corridors of time and he saw who might believe. And when he realized, oh, they might believe, okay, I'm going to elect that person. So the first thing that happens is people are believing and then God elects them as a result. But that is not election according to the Bible. God didn't elect people based on whether he thought they would believe or not. Uh, the other extreme of election where it's often misrepresented is where people say, Christians, well, in eternity past, God chose some who will go to heaven, and then God also chose and selected some who will go to hell. That's election. And I'd say that is not the biblical doctrine of election. And I'm going to explain why. Uh, But other uh, corollary truths regarding the doctrine of election. Um, It is the sovereign choice on God's part in eternity past. Another reality about election. All those who are elect by God will be saved. Scripture is clear about that. Another one. Being elect does not nullify our belief or faith. In order to be saved, you have to exercise faith and belief. Scripture is clear. Believe and you'll be saved. Election is God's side of the salvation picture. Believing is our side of the salvation picture in terms of how it's being perceived and communicated and understood. 
although God is the one that takes the initiative in salvation. Another thing about election is the elect cannot lose their salvation. Once the elect believe the gospel and are saved in this lifetime, they can't lose their salvation. Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Many other truths clearly tell us that. Romans 8, the most specific. Uh, the idea of election is not a New Testament truth. It's not Paul didn't invent it. It's also true of angels, the elect angels. They were elect, the good angels, elect by God, secure and then there's evil angels as well. And also it says that Jesus was elect, selected by the Father before the foundation of the world for his role as Savior. So this doctrine of election and, and the saints in the Old Testament were also elect by God, Isaiah 65 and other passages. So election is not a new thing to the New Testament believers. Um, election is also synonymous with predestination or foreordination in your Bible where those words interchange sometimes. Election is not determinism or fatalism. Where everything I do, think, say was determined by God before the foundation of the universe. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm wearing this tie today because I chose this tie. God did not choose this tie for me. He did not predestine that I wear this tie. It was 100% my choice. Important to keep that in mind. Uh, I just want to look at one verse. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Where, if those of you maybe based on your upbringing or background, you've never been exposed to the doctrine of election, or maybe you were at a church that taught a different view, there are a lot of verses that make it clear that no, election is a biblical doctrine, but I just want to highlight one verse that makes it clear. And that's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. where Paul introduces himself to the church at Ephesus. And he says, "Blessed in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us as believers with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, Just as He, that's God the Father, chose us in Christ, we were chosen for salvation. We were elected unto salvation. Well, when did that happen? When did God do that? Before the foundation of the world. There it is. Before creation, we were chosen by God the Father in Jesus Christ to be saved. That is election. Just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world in order that we should be holy and blameless before Him in this lifetime after we believe. Ephesians 1.4, one of the clearest verses. Just a couple other points about election to fill it out to help you understand better. Election in the New Testament is always restricted to good news the good news of salvation. Election, the doctrine of election in the New Testament is always restricted to the good news of salvation. It's, always, it's supposed to be good news. Saying that before the foundation of the world, God elected some to go to hell forever. That is not good news. And I, my position is you can't find that statement or that teaching anywhere in the New Testament. Some people will try. I don't think it's there. I've never seen it. Every time election is referred to, it is always talking to believers to encourage them with respect to good news of how God is a saving God. It is good news. And, and Paul always does this to Christians for the purpose of encouraging them, stabilizing their faith, strengthening their confidence in their relationship with God, and, and building their assurance of salvation and faith. That is the purpose of the doctrine of election when it's being taught in the New Testament. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. It's an encouraging thought for believers. 
It is not part of the gospel message that you share with unbelievers. According to the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15 does not say, when you see an unbeliever, go and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ, that you're a sinner, you need to repent, believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross, rose again from the dead, uh, and you need to ask him to save you, and also you need to believe that you're one of the, the elect, because if you're not elect, you're not getting saved and you're going to hell. That is not good news. That's not the gospel. That's confusing the gospel message. Very important to keep that in mind. And then just a couple other last points here. Um, the doctrine of election or predestination is never used uh, regarding our many free and random choices that we make day to day in life. What shall I feed the dog this morning? Uh, what clothes shall I put on? Those, those are not predestined. God does give us freedom to make decisions. It's not sovereign freedom. It's not ultimate freedom. It's limited freedom or freedom on a leash. But it is true freedom. We use our volition. We're accountable for our choices. There are consequences to the choices we make. Some people like to refer to free will. I would say free will is not a good phrase because it's not precise. It's very confusing. And also implies that we are sovereign in our choices. If you are married and you have a family, you know for a fact, theologically, you don't have free will because everybody else's free wills is conflicting with your free will all the time. It's the war of the free wills in your house. So there's just one example that our choices are limited by so many other variables. And in the end, free... uh, Election does not conflict with human responsibility. The Apostle Paul, what's amazing is the Apostle Paul, he's the one who taught more specifically on the truth and the doctrine of election. That in eternity past, God elected and chose those who will be saved. The Apostle Paul delineated that thoroughly and very clearly. The same Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, talking about unsaved Jews, that my heart's desire and prayer for them is their salvation. Those two messages uh, don't jibe. They kind of conflict in the human mind. How can Paul say that only those who are elect will be saved, and at the same time he's praying passionately for every lost person that he knows that they might be saved? How does that work? I do not know. That is a mystery resolved only in the mind of God. It's not a contradiction. It is a mystery that hasn't been revealed to us. So can you pray for the salvation of those that are lost that you know? Absolutely. Because the Apostle Paul did in Romans 10.1. So that is really at the heart of what Paul's getting at here in terms of this amazing message of salvation. It starts in eternity past. Then it goes on. Let's go back to Titus chapter 1. Just a couple other points that he's going to emphasize even more specifically that salvation is a reality that takes place by our belief in this lifetime when we hear the gospel message. As he says, says, the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So the knowledge of the truth, that's the gospel message. That is the truth about Jesus Christ that is preached. That we hear the truth about Jesus, that he's the God-man, that we're sinners, that he died as a substitute, he was buried, he rose again. He calls us to repentance. That is the truth we need to believe in order to be saved in this lifetime. That's what he means by the knowledge of the truth. If you do that, if you believe in that message, repent and be saved and become a Christian, then the byproduct or overflow of that will be at the end of verse 1 where it says, this message of salvation is according to godliness. Or if you're a Christian, you should live in a godly manner. If you got saved and born again, then you're going to live a godly life. You're going to have a holy life. You're going to hate Sin. You're not going to be perfect, but when you do sin, you'll hate it. You'll confess it. You'll want to get away from it, and you'll want to grow in godliness, grow in holiness. And Titus uniquely puts a special emphasis on good works that Christians 
need to do on a regular basis in their life. And that's one of the purposes of God in saving us, that we might do our good works to glorify Him and at the same time be a witness to unbelievers around us as they look at our unique life and say, wow, these Christians are different in a good way. They hate sin. Get this, they get along. They love each other. They're unified in a unique kind of way. Those are byproducts of being saved. And so that happens in this lifetime. So you've got eternity past salvation, eternity present when we believe that truth. And then there's a future component to salvation. That's the beginning of verse 2. Look at it. It says, in the hope of eternal life. Did you know that eternal life is not just when you believe the message and get saved? There's a component and a reality to eternal life that we haven't experienced yet. It happens in the future. It happens when Jesus comes or when we die. Have you experienced eternal life as a Christian? You could say yes and no. I have the quality of eternal life right now because I know Jesus Christ. But there's an element to eternal life I haven't realized yet, and that is the resurrection in the future. When I get my eternal, physical, perfect, heavenly, supernatural resurrection body that will reunite with my soul that is sinless, and I will live in that in heaven with God, with Christ, with all the saints, all the holy angels for all eternity. Doesn't that sound like good news? And that is yet to come. And that is the component or the emphasis of eternal life that Paul is talking about in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. He's not talking about eternal life that happens in this life. He, it's the hope of eternal life. Hope refers to that which has not been realized yet. It is deferred to the future. So in a nutshell, that is salvation as planned by God that started in eternity past, begins to be fulfilled presently, will be culminated in the future at the resurrection. And that is the message that has been trusted to the Apostle Paul to share with sinners that he is now entrusting to Titus to those on Crete. So you've got the messenger, the Apostle Paul, speaking with God's authority. You've got the supernatural Savior's message, which has to do with eternal life for the chosen or the elect. And then finally, number three, the Savior's missionary. A missionary is just simply one who goes and does a mission on behalf of someone else. And in the New Testament, missionaries are simply receptacles of the truth of Jesus Christ And we share that message wherever we go, whether it's in the local neighborhood or on the other side of the world. And so I'm referring to Titus, the child of faith. So the Savior's missionary, I'm referring to Titus, the child of faith. He is the specific missionary who is the topic of discussion in Titus chapter 1 through 3. Talked a lot about Titus last week. If you weren't here, you can get uh, the message on that. And we found out that he was a unique friend of the Apostle Paul and a unique co-laborer of Paul and probably one of his most Unique characteristics was he was with Paul the longest through thick and thin, almost 20 years. Maybe Timothy is the only one that rivals that commitment in terms of sticking with Paul the whole time. And the other unique thing about Titus was he was unflappable. And he just seemed to be steady and constant no matter what was going on around him or what kind of division or trial a church had. He was one steady, reliable person that Paul could always rely on Uh, to go deal with very difficult issues, whether it's false teachers or divisive, nasty behavior in certain Christian congregations. Titus proved himself that he could pull it off. He did it with the Corinthians. That was an amazing feat. And so Paul's got a challenging situation here on the island of Crete. You've got some troublemakers. Uh, Titus, he's my man. He's going to go help set that straight. And so he is uh, a very special missionary on behalf of Paul. So going on in verse 2, Paul... uh, 
continues in the message of salvation and the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. That's in eternity past. Verse 3, but at the proper time manifested even his word. That's through the Apostle Paul and the preaching of the gospel and writing scripture in the proclamation with which the Apostle Paul was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And just to note in verse 4 that unique definition there, Titus, my true child. He only says that of Timothy as well. And so we believe that Timothy and Titus were actually saved under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, where as he was going through certain towns and certain areas, preached the gospel, Timothy responded to Paul's message, and then Paul actually became an immediate mentor and trained Timothy. The same is true with Titus. Titus heard Paul preach, Titus responded, got saved, and Paul has been mentoring very closely and deliberately Titus. And as a result, he can call him my true child. So Paul was a mentor. But at the same time, Paul wasn't just a mentor. Paul was also a peer with Titus, as he is with every Christian. That's the second part of verse 4. Not only is Titus a child of Paul, but in the common faith. We all get saved the same way, don't we? We are all equally sinners before God, right? So we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. So we're all on even playing ground in one respect. And so Paul is a man of humility. He recognizes that. Um, He's not pulling rank because he's an apostle. He says, yeah, Titus got saved under my ministry. He's faithful. He's a beloved friend. But at the same time, we are one in the faith. We are both sinners saved by grace. That is our common bond. That's what knits us together. That's a beautiful testimony from the Apostle Paul. And that's how you should view and I should view every other Christian, right? We're all in the same playing ground. Sinners saved by grace, yet unique with different weaknesses, strengths, and gifts. And then just one other note that I think is great about the Apostle Paul and how he's an ideal leader for people in ministry. The Apostle Paul calling uh, Titus his true child, uh, that was so typical of Paul, in that Paul never, you know, he never went and did ministry by himself. He was always with other men, always. Either mentors or people he was training or wanting to train. And many times there's a lot of people surrounded him. If you go through the book of Acts, there's all kinds of names of people who are surrounding him. Barnabas, John Mark, Silas, uh, Luke, and uh, Tychicus, and on and on it goes. Which is a, a beautiful testimony about what Paul thought of ministry. He wasn't territorial. He didn't have to be the big shot in the center of the show. I'm the boss. I'm in charge. He didn't have to be in the limelight. He was always part of a ministering team, which is a beautiful model for us. Because it wasn't Paul's church. You know, it was Christ's church and God's church. He's just a slave. And Paul was always with other people around him, surrounding him for fellowship, for accountability, for help, because he couldn't do it all himself. I think of Romans 16 as Paul's closing that letter and he recognizes 27 fellow ministers by name who are all on his team, which is amazing. So we can't be the lone ranger in Christian ministry. And Paul sets the beautiful example. And then he closes with this beautiful refrain that all Christians really should adopt when they greet fellow believers and when they say goodbye. In the Old Testament, it was shalom. The peace of God be unto you when you said goodbye or when you said hello. And the New Testament refrain is this, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. May the grace of God, so when you see another believer, grace to you. May God's grace, you know, we're being reminded of the grace He's shed abroad upon us and what makes us Brothers and sisters in the Lord, grace and peace. And as a result of His grace, we have peace with God. We have peace 
uh, with one another who are believers. And that's just a beautiful way to, to greet fellow believers. Grace and peace. It's a lot better than hi. Or huh. Or what's up? Yo. All those superficial, meaningless, whatever that we do. How are you today? Fine. Liar. Grace and peace to you in the name of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great thing that we could assimilate into our own lives. And you don't have to feel guilty if you don't say it all the time, but to bless another believer, it's something that we should make a part of our arsenal and our everyday conversation as we greet one another in the Lord. Well, with that, let's go ahead and go to this great saving God as we're reminded through the living metaphor of communion that God is a saving God. And Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. Let me pray for us before we partake in communion. Father, we do thank You for time to be in Your Word, to be reminded of supernatural truths. Thank You for the Lord Jesus, our Savior. God, thank You for an amazing truth and doctrine like election. Almost defies human understanding, but thank You for explaining it to us and reminding believers that they have all been elected and chosen by God. And as a result... If we know You through Christ, we are secure for all eternity. God, give us that encouragement today that we would meditate upon that truth. And in the midst of whatever assaults us and confronts us this day and this week, that we know we have the solid rock of salvation that is irreconcilable. It is unchangeable. It is eternal. We thank You for that great truth. We love You, Lord. We commit it to You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.